It's the Rush Fancast. It's Steve and Jerry with you as always. Jerry, what's going on? Well, not much, Steve. How are you? I'm great. We haven't recorded in a while. It's been a couple of weeks. We took a little bit of a break. Right. Almost a vacation. But the listeners, they didn't even notice because we're on every week. Right. It's magic. We shouldn't even have mentioned it. <laughs> just about everything we mentioned, we probably shouldn't have mentioned. That's true. We just go home right now. I am home. <laughs> You can find us on Twitter at RushFanCast, Instagram, we are the RushCast. Email Jerry. The emails, I mean, they're coming in fast and furious, these emails. You can't even keep up. Speaking of not being able to keep up, I had about 250 emails that I hadn't responded to. 250? <laughs> yes. Are you serious? Yeah. And some of them I could just like say, thanks, you know, sign. they want to sign up to the email list or just say thanks or something like that, or maybe... They were responses to something I had already sent, so I just put them in some folders. And I responded to a couple of them, and I got responses back saying, uh, Jerry, you already responded to this email like two months ago. <laughs> I was like, oops. So now I have to be extra careful. It's hard for us to keep track. We appreciate all the emails we're getting. If we respond twice, bear with us. If we don't respond at all, bear with us. The rushcast at gmail.com. The rushcast at gmail.com is the email address. The base intro, as always, our good buddy Lex, another fabulous job. And I don't have a Twitter poll for you today, Jer. You don't? I don't, but I asked a question on Twitter. If you recall, when we talked about signals, we were wondering if losing it was Rush's saddest song. Yes, I do. So I asked the people on Twitter, is losing it Rush's saddest song? And if not, what do you think Rush's saddest song is? And I got a lot of responses. Oh, yeah? So a lot of people agreed with us, losing it is the saddest song. Okay. A lot of people thought the garden. Garden. And some people thought that wasn't sad. And I sort of agree with that. I don't think it's a sad song. It's a melancholy song for sure. Right, but it makes us sad because it reminds us of Neil passing away, I think. Oh, I don't think it's a sad song. Right. It's definitely a very emotional and bittersweet song, but it doesn't make me, you know, sad like losing it does. So here's another couple of suggestions. Nathan, our good buddy Nathan, emailed and said, Tears. I, I could kind of agree with that. Yeah, you know, I hate to say it. I don't really listen to Tears that much. I think we mentioned it when we did our 2112 episode. It's not one of my go-to Rush songs. Mm -hmm. So, Snarkosaurus said, Nobody's Hero and Time Stands Still. Snarkosaurus. Snarkosaurus. <laughs> uh, Luke says, Between the Wheels, somebody named Waterboy. Adam Sandler. After image. Okay, yeah. Todd says the pass mm. and vapor trail. We also heard Ghost Rider, Rivendell, Red Sector A. And here's my favorite. At X2 underscore Cygnus says the saddest rush song is I think I'm going bald. <laughs> <laughs> Which that might be a little personal to him. <laughs> maybe. Anyway, so th those are the sad songs. You got an email for me, Jer. Yes, today we're going to do something a little different. Okay. In that, um, I asked in our weekly reminder email what people thought of Countdown. Listen, I said, listen to the episode. What do you think of Countdown? And I got a lot of responses. Most of them, again, like everything, split down the middle. I love it. It's not my favorite, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So I have a representative sample of some of the comments. Okay. So I would read some of them. So this is from David. He says, after the existential sadness of losing it, it was really nice of them to finish on this high note of optimism. It balances things so nicely and finishes the album, leaving me wanting more. So that's a good thing, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I can agree with that. And then Jim says, Jim is answering your comment about whether or not seeing the song live would change my opinion. Oh, okay. He saw them play it live. And he says... First time I saw Rush Live was a Signals tour. I was 15, and it was also my first concert ever. I saw every tour until the end and relished every moment. The first concert will always be my favorite for many reasons, mostly nostalgic, I'm sure. But believe it or not, to me, Countdown was the highlight of the show. Wow. Like Jerry, I thought it was the weakest song on the album. No real melodies, etc. The setup visually back then was a huge screen behind Neil, and just before the song started, the lights went down to almost pitch black. And suddenly, the Space Shuttle Columbia is projected on that huge screen. As the song started with that heavy, bassy keyboard, and every nerve in my body vibrated with the rhythm, 
and it only built as the song went on. The fog kicked in as the shuttle rises in the song with actual NASA footage. And if you will pardon me, the excitement was so thick, you could cut it with a knife. Aha! Since that show, I have always had fond memories of Countdown. While I wholeheartedly agree it's not the best song in Rush's catalog, it is certainly not in the same league as Rivendell or Tai Shan. Oh, wow. So there you go. So maybe I would I would like it more had I seen it. I think you would have. I think you definitely would have. And this comes from Brian. He says, I just want to mention about the stuff of dreams. That's when I said I didn't like the word stuff. Right. In the line. He says, that's a reference to Shakespeare from The Tempest. Aha. Uh-huh. We are such stuff as dreams are made of. Also, I think the placement of super science and dreams is deliberate. It's the mingling of two diametrically opposed ideas. Think the heart and the mind from hemispheres coming together in one event. Now, if you had known the stuff of dreams was Shakespeare, Jer, would you have thought differently? Yes, of course. Now, it's not cliche, is it? No, it's not cliche. So... My, my, the tide is turning for me. Okay. The tide really turns for me with this email. Okay. Uh, this is from Brian. He says, I want to address your countdown challenge. I tend to side with you. It's not really a proper song with riffs and chorus and hooks that I might gravitate to. I've enjoyed Signals for many years, but always found it to be a weak ending. Dismissed it purely as a gimmick. However, recently I stumbled upon a YouTube channel with lots of isolated tracks and alternate mixes. Below is a link to Countdown, but without the launch sequence. Hmm. So if you go to YouTube, there's a, a channel called The Rush Musician and Fan Channel. And they have a version, a mix of some kind, of Countdown without the launch sequence speaking over it. And it's, I don't know if it was remastered. It, I listened to it. It sounds amazing. Let's play a little of it here. keyboard solo that sounds cheesy on the record does not sound cheesy there so now now that you've heard this jer and you know that the lines are not cliche what's your opinion of countdown now i'm going to revisit my opinion of countdown Ooh. i'm going to listen to the song more often instead of stopping it may it make it out of your bottom 10 it might i don't think it's going to rise above the bottom quarter let's say (laughs) okay and i think you mentioned our listener chuck last podcast maybe two podcasts ago yes i did he doesn't like signals Mm -hmm. and he he said that he wanted us to convince him to like it right so this is what he says oh you heard from chuck i love it i heard from chuck oh that that, was that not clear (laughs) (laughs) i heard from chuck he says when signals came out i was an angry young man about to go into my 20s Two years removed from high school. I heard subdivisions and thought, why are they writing about high school? I'm past that. I might have heard this album once while in school, but I never bought it. And it just did not sound like the rush I knew. This was about the time I was getting into Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd as well. So I blew off new rush. I kept listening to the old stuff and closed off the new. I just finished your podcast about signals. 
I cannot say that I am 100% converted, but I'm close. If I had had the lyrics along with the songs back then, I might have thought differently about it. Now that I'm 57, I can appreciate the words a little more. I am a space nut, and I never knew that they had a song about a rocket launch. Wow. So he never listened to the album at all. That's crazy. Maybe a cursory listen once. He never even knew that Countdown existed. The weapon has much to echo in Getty's vocals, but the words hit home. New World Man I have liked before, and you guys really bring out the meaning of some songs. So I can say that now that I've heard you dissect the songs on Signals, I'm about 80% there, and I might have to get that dictionary out again. Wow, 80%. I'll take it. Yeah, I still have the same one here from the house when I was in high school. I came back to Rush when Presto came out. I love that one. And my last concert I saw of theirs was Tess for Echo in 1997. They did all of 2112, including the Oracle. And I spent extra sitting in the gold circle seating at the Star Lake Amphitheater near Pittsburgh, PA. So there you go. Nice. We did it. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that as a win. I'm going to take 80% as a conversion. <laughs> I know, 80%. That's like, a, that's like a solid B, right? Yep. Chuck, thanks so much for listening, and thanks for being open-minded about Signals. Yeah, and I'm going to be open-minded about Countdown from now on. Great. And I think we can work on Chuck a little bit on Grace Under Pressure. What do you say? Oh, yeah, he doesn't like Grace Under Pressure that much, right? I would guess not if he didn't buy anything after moving pictures, right? Oh, yeah, I did say that, didn't I? He did. He did. Let's keep working on Chuck. Grace Under Pressure, Rush's 10th studio album, Joe, released... April 12th, 1984, we were 15 years old and still unaware of the greatness of Rush. Unaware. Produced by Peter Henderson, first album without Terry Brown. Yeah. And uh, Peter Henderson, I don't know if you know this, he produced Super Tramp's Breakfast in America. Did you know that? I didn't know that. That's a great album. I had that album. That's Peter's claim to fame. Wow. It was recorded at Le Studio Marin Heights, Quebec. And the singles on Grace Under Pressure, Jared, do you know what they are? Four singles I have for you. Four singles? Yes. Well, Distant Early Warning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> could be the other singles? This is a tough one. Yeah. What else could it be? Red Sector A? Yeah, that's two. Kid Gloves? No. Uh, I'm going to get the other one wrong, too, then. Uh, let's see. Um, the Enemy Within? No. Oh, man. What are the other ones? The Body Electric, and After Image. Oh, yeah, I guess that makes sense. So Grace Under Pressure reached number four in Canada, Jared, number five in the UK, and reached number 10 on the Billboard 200. Pretty good. Yeah, that's incredible. Really is incredible. And the title of the album is inspired by a quote from Ernest Hemingway. Again with Ernest Hemingway. Yes, who said, courage is grace under pressure. And Neil said he thought the quote reflected the ambient mood of the album's recording sessions. Yeah, evidently they, it wasn't a smooth time. No, and interestingly, in the liner notes of the album, Jer, Neil talks extensively about the switch from Terry Brown to their new producer. And it was a difficult transition for them. Yeah, it was. Yeah. So um, you want me to read a little? I mean, this is really long, but I can read a little bit of it for you. Sure. Again, I found this on the Power Windows website. So shortly after the release of our Signals album, we began to think and talk of the future. In the early part of the tour, our longtime friend and co-producer Terry Brown flew down to meet us in Miami. After the show, riding on our bus through the dark and steamy Florida night, we sat back, drinks in hand, to discuss our future course. Alex Getty and I had been discussing these things for a while now and had decided that it was time for us to strike out on our own and try working with someone else. We wanted, no needed, to find out if someone, perhaps from a different background, might have a different approach and different techniques to offer, both to our music and our sound. It was important and difficult for us to express to Terry that this in no way signified a dissatisfaction or lack of confidence in him. It was just that after almost 10 years and 11 albums together, we'd evolved into a comfortable and efficient recording team, the four of us, and we could even pretty well predict each other's opinions and reactions to different ideas. As positive as this situation may sound, this is exactly what we were worried about. There's a lot more, but they weren't unhappy with him at all. Right. I guess they just wanted to be challenged more than there was less unhappiness with him, I guess, in his skills and his person. It's just that they needed 
to go a different direction and maybe he wasn't the best person to help them get there. Yeah. They, they were almost too comfortable with him. Right. If that makes any sense. Yeah. They were almost too close with him. They could complete each other's sentences really probably. Yeah. This would have been a good time for me to complete your sentence right now, but I didn't. <laughs> I missed my opportunity. The other interesting thing I read, Jer, is when they were looking for other producers, they had found someone by the name of Steve Lillywhite. Oh, yeah, Steve Lillywhite. Right. And there's a quote from Getty. This is from Martin Popoff's book, Contents Under Pressure, which I believe is out of print, okay. but I found a portion of it online. Signals was the last record that Terry Brown did with us. Peter Henderson came in for grace, but he was really on our B list as a producer. We had planned to work with Steve Lillywhite for that record, but there was a problem at the last moment and we had to go to our B list. Now here's where the quote gets interesting. Steve Lillywhite is really not a man of his word. Notes Getty as he reflects on the making of the album. After agreeing to do our record, he got an offer from simple minds, changed his mind, blew us off and went and did the simple minds record. Wow. You believe that? No, that's incredible. Yeah. That's crazy town. How could you blow off Rush for Simple Minds? Yeah, maybe at the time it seemed like a good idea. Yeah, well, Simple Minds was probably bigger, I guess, at the time. I mean, still, Steve Lillywhite worked with U2 later, too. That would have been an interesting album. I would love to have, in an alternate universe, to see what kind of album they would have made together. And the other interesting thing I saw was that the band met with Chris Squire and Trevor Horn of Yes. What? to discuss producing the album and it never oh materialized. My, oh my God. That would have been incredible. I found it, you know, I don't have it in front of me, but I found it on a, a yes website. The quotes from Chris Squire talking about meeting Getty Lee. Okay. And talking about possibly producing this album. Wow. And it just never, never came to be, but that would have been interesting too. Yeah. Chris Squire. Yeah. Trevor Rabin. I'm sure the album would have sounded way different. Not Trevor Rabin, Trevor Horn. Oh, what did I say Trevor Rabin? You did. There, there are a couple of Trevors in Yes. There were like, I know there are. Like every other guy was named Trevor in Yes. <laughs> but anyway, so, so new producer and definitely a different sound for Rush on this record, don't you think? Yeah, you know, for me, I always thought that sonically this album sat right after Moving Pictures. I think that, that Signals is closer to the keyboardy sounds of Power Windows. And that Grace Under Pressure is closer to the sounds of moving pictures. So you think the progression should have been Grace Under Pressure and then Signals and then Power Windows? Just from a sonic standpoint. Huh. Because, I mean, there are keyboards in this album, but they're not, it's not drenched in keyboards like Signals yeah. kind of sounds like and definitely a Power Windows and Hold Your Fire sound like. Maybe it's just because I'm used to hearing them in that order that it just seems perfect to me. I don't know why but it seems perfect to me. Well, I mean, it's a nearly perfect album. I got to say. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's really is like a, like the lost classic. You know what I mean? It's kind of forgotten. Yeah. I don't think grace under pressure gets a lot of attention as much attention as some of the other albums. And it is, it's for me, it's still like a, just a notch, two notches below moving pictures. It's a fantastic album. Yeah, it really is. So what do you say? Before we talk about the music, we talk about, this album cover, Joe, that I'm holding up. Yeah. You know, there's a lot going on in this album cover. There is, but I mean, I think it's beautiful. I mean, this might be the best piece of art that Hugh Syme did for Rush on an album. What do you think? Uh, as, a, as a piece of art? Yeah, like abstract? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this is just something you could, you could hang on your wall, and it would look fantastic, even if you didn't know it was a Rush album. Don't you think? Yeah. According to... Uh, the book, you know, or the art of rush, Neil had the original painting hung in his office. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. That would be cool to have. But, you know, there's a lot going on. You know, a lot of this album, Grace Under Pressure, obviously the, the title comes from the fact that they were having a difficult time recording. Right. But it's also, a lot of the songs are, are uh, about war, about environmental degradation, about losing people. And about trying to maintain, you know, some semblance of normalcy in a high pressure situation. Mm -hmm. And I love the fact that it, that the, the cover, it just has, you know, a G under a P 
like a mathematical equation breaks mm-hmm. under pressure. And if you look at the, I think everyone, if, if you're listening, you should look at the album cover because it's some things I never noticed about the album cover before. And again, it's from the, from the Art of Rush. Wow, let's hear it. So you might notice, and again, I didn't really notice, that there are two different parts to this album cover. There's a lower part and an upper part, and they're separated by a line right down the middle. So the upper part is pressure, and the lower part is grace, correct? Yeah, because that's where, that's where the, the, the equation falls. The P in pressure is on the top in the cloudy part, and grace is underneath it in the more placid part. Mm-hmm. And in the cloudy part, Hugh said that if you look under the name Rush, right underneath there is a human jaw with some teeth in it. Oh yeah, look at that. I never noticed that. With a blood, with some blood dripping down the tooth. Yeah, look at that. And he said that he, this was a memory he had of going to the dentist when he was a child, having a tooth pulled. Wow. I, I did not see that until just now. I know, I'm telling you. And then toward the center, you can see an eye poking out. Now that I've seen, it almost looks like a, a hawk's eye or something. Well, yeah, it's, it's supposed to represent the eye of the hurricane, the eye of the storm. Okay. And the other interesting thing was in the, right in the middle, there's this, it looks like a piece of metal, right? Mm-hmm. Now, around the time that this album was recorded, the Soviet Union shot down a passenger plane heading from New York to Seoul, flight 007, I believe, and killed everybody on board. And so Hugh said that this wasn't a conscious decision to put a piece of metal that kind of looked like part of an airplane, but that's kind of what it looks like. Yeah, definitely. So there's a lot of turmoil. And then uh, there's a great quote in, <laughs> in the book. Neil suggested there be more humanity in the cover because it was just this image. So Hugh said in his book, Neil felt the cover needed a bit of humanity so I added in a human element. <laughs> <laughs> but the human element is like, what is it, like a, like a mannequin? Yeah. It's basically, it's basically supposed to represent um, the android from the body electric. But it's not, a, it's not a very human element, right? It's someone looking, you can't even see their eyes, and it's just looking dispassionately at, at this tumultuous scene right in front of them. Yeah. And it once again was kind of, ruined by the printer how's that Hugh said that there's a lot there were a lot more subtle colors in this lots of like pastel colors and he wasn't there at the printers when they were printing these out and they dulled the colors and it came out a lot more metallic than it was supposed to so it got screwed up like corrosive steel did yeah it's still a fantastic Oh, it's great. You know, we were talking about what were our favorite Rush album covers. I kind of forgot about this one. See what I say? It's it's a forgotten album. I don't forget it. It's just not top of mind, I guess, all the time. Right. And it should be. So I've got a quote from Neil on Hugh Syme. This is not relating to this album, but I thought this was great. Okay. I can offer no higher tribute than this. In four decades of my life and work, every recording, tour book, instructional DVD or published book that has my name on it has Hugh's name on it. Yeah. That's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Neil called grace under pressure. One of Hugh's quieter album covers along with hold your fire and vapor trails. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Absolutely. And speaking of fantastic, Steve grace under pressure, the album Good segue, <laughs> yes, Jer. Thank you. I tried so hard. <laughs> Distant early warning. I know the wind comes rising across the cities of the plain. There's no swimming in the heavy water, no singing in the acid rain. Red alert. Red alert It's so hard to stay together Passing through revolving doors We need someone to talk to And someone to sweep the floors Incomplete Incomplete 
I know, Jerry, you'll love it when I start with a quote, so I will. Good. Neil, from an interview with Jim Ladd, and I believe Jim Ladd started out by asking Neil about the tense world situation at the time. Mm-hmm. And Neil responded by saying, the main theme of the song is a series of things, but that's certainly one of the ideas, meaning the tense world situation. Okay. Living in the modern world, basically in all its manifestations in terms of the distance from us of the threat of superpowers and the nuclear annihilation and all that stuff, and these giant missiles pointed at each other across the ocean, there's all of that, but that tends to have a little bit of distance from people's lives. But at the same time, I think it's omnipresent. You know, I think that threat does loom somewhere in everyone's subconscious, perhaps. And then it deals with the closer things in terms of relationships and how to keep a relationship in such a swift-moving world. And it has something to do with our particular lives, dealing with revolving doors, going in and out. But I also think that's generally true with people in the modern world, where things for a lot of people are very difficult, and consequently, work and the mundane concerns of life tend to take precedence over the important values of relationships and the larger world, and the world of the abstract, as opposed to the concrete, and dealing with all those things with grace. Hmm. That's a long, long explanation. Right, but that explains one lyric I never really could get a hold of. Which is? Passing through revolving doors. Yeah. It's so hard to stay together passing through revolving doors. Mm -hmm. There you go. Yeah. There's a little bit more. Okay, go ahead. When I see a little bit of grace in someone's life, Like when you drive past a horrible tenement building and you see those wonderful pink flamingos on the balcony or something like some little aspect of humanity that strikes you as beautiful resistance, if you like. Interesting. Yeah. That reminds me, there's, there was in the Art of Rush book, they mentioned one alternate cover that they were thinking of. Okay. And it was a hand reaching under like a barbed wire fence, clutching a flower. Same sort of thing. Yeah. Little aspect of humanity that strikes you as beautiful resistance. Yeah. Interesting. So your thoughts on Distant Early Warning, Jer? Uh, It's definitely one of my favorite songs in the entire catalog. I love this song. Yeah. Always did. The title, Distant Early Warning, references an actual warning system. Right. The D-E-W line. There you go. Meant to, uh, it was a radar system throughout Canada, I think up in the Arctic Circle and, and down mm-hmm. that was supposed to warn us of incoming ballistic missiles. Yeah. One of the things that, that came up in the Art of Rush book is that not only at this time was that passenger plane shot down, but in the Soviet Union, they got a false positive on incoming missiles from America. Really? Yeah. And what do they do? Twice in one day. Oh. Well, I can only imagine they were freaking out, Yeah, but they decided to check it out first before they responded. And it turned out that it was a false alarm on their end. But like, that's some super serious stuff, right? <laughs> because if, if you would think that, that, uh, you know, the Soviet Union were, were lobbing a hundred, you know, intercontinental ballistic missiles topped with nuclear weapons at us, your first reaction might be just to lob them right back. Oh, sure. They waited just to get further confirmation. Well, the problem with lobbing them right back is they do that and end game, you know? Yeah. It's over for all of us. Yeah. Mutually assured destruction. Yeah. So they wanted to make sure and thankfully they did. Right. So starting off from the beginning of this song with the title, this is a heavy song. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, totally. This is a really heavy song. An ill wind comes arising across the cities of the plain. There's no swimming in the heavy water, no singing in the acid rain. Wow. Yeah. I had to look up what heavy water was. Yeah, so did I. So did I. But now that I know what it is, it makes total sense. Makes total sense. Altered form of water used in plutonium production. Yeah. Wow. The hydrogen is replaced by deuterium, which is a radioactive isotope. So, And the next line, I think, is just fantastic because it's kind of a twist on the movie title singing in the rain, no singing in the acid rain. Wow, Steve. I didn't notice that. Yeah, you're right. Right. Yeah. That's what I think. You know how Neil always liked to slip in old movie stuff. I can't believe I didn't never pick that up. An ironic twist. Yeah. So it sounds like from the beginning, uh, like this is nuclear winter to me, right? Yeah. 
and ill will comes arising. And then there's heavy water that's been turned radioactive and acid rain, of course. Acid rain was a big concern back in the 80s. Mm-hmm. I don't know what happened to acid rain. What happened to acid rain, Steve? I don't know. Like the hole in the ozone. I don't know. I think it's still, you know, obviously it's still something that could happen, but people don't worry about it anymore, I guess. No, you don't really hear about it very much anymore because we have larger concerns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's so hard to stay together, passing through revolving doors. We need someone to talk to and someone to sweep the floors. So I really had no idea what that meant until you said what Neil said, you know? Yeah. Their daily concerns supersede your concern this larger world concern. Yeah. You got, you got to sweep the floor still. Yeah. You need people around you to talk to. You need to go through revolving doors. People come in and out of your life and still you need people to just take care of the mundane. Mm -hmm. Um, and then uh, incomplete, incomplete. What, what, what's that mean? Do you think, you know, I, I'm not sure that maybe the, the living like this is an incomplete way to live. Like we should, be paying attention to the larger. Right. Well, yeah, I guess, that, I guess that's what he's saying that we should be paying attention to the, the larger problems in the world, but we're spending too much time dealing with the smaller problems in our world that we don't really have time to think about it. Right. Figuring out what to have for lunch. Right. Cause you still have to do that. Yeah. You still have to send the kids to school. You still have to sweep the floors. You still have to do all that stuff. Even though nuclear war is on the horizon. Possibly. <laughs> right. Yes. yes. Just in case it doesn't happen, I still got to feed my kids. Right. And then my, my favorite, I love the chorus in this song. Yeah, it's fantastic. The world weighs on my shoulders, but what am I to do? You sometimes drive me crazy, but I worry about you. Mm. I think that's a reference to children too, right? You sometimes drive me crazy. I don't know. I just thought it meant the world in general. The world weighs on my shoulders, but what am I to do? He's talking about the, the second uh, verse, right? What, what am I going to do? There are all these problems in the world. Literally, what am I going to do? Like nothing. You, I think the you he's referring to is the world. You sometimes drive me crazy when I worry about you. Like he's worried about all of these things, but there's no, worry is the only thing he can he can offer. See, I took that as his family. He's talking about you sometimes drive me crazy. Maybe my wife or my kids, but. Because of all these world problems, I worry about you. No? I don't know. I didn't think of it that way, but it's entirely possible. <laughs> but then he says, I know it makes no difference to what you're going through because it doesn't matter your opinion on these things, right? The things are going to be what they are, whether or not you sit in your home and rail against them or pray for them to happen. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. But I see the tip of the iceberg and I worry about you. The tip of the iceberg, Jar. Yeah. Famously, icebergs are 90% underwater or something like that. Correct. So when you see the tip of it, you're only seeing a, the small part of it, but it's also this humongous thing that you, you know there's a big problem, but you're only seeing the tip of it. You're only seeing a small portion of it. You no, know, smart, small portion of it. Ask the captain of the Titanic about that. But that's such a great line. It is. Neil, again, just amazing. So he's seeing all these problems. He knows they're there, but... There's nothing, there's nothing to do about it. Yeah. What can you or I do about nuclear annihilation, Jer? Yeah. Except just keep sweeping our floors. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I have a dog that licks the floors constantly, so I haven't had to sweep my floors in years. <laughs> very lucky. Yeah, very lucky. And then cruising under your radar, watching from the satellites, take a page from the red book and keep them in your sights. Take a page from the Red Book, Jer. What do you think that means? Um, well, I mean, Chairman Mao's uh, book is sometimes called the Little Red Book, so it could be something about that, or it just could be, you know, red is the is the color of the Soviets. I found something on the website called Song Meanings. Somebody named Tommy the Cat posted this. Okay, Tommy the Cat. That is a uh, Primus <laughs> reference. It sure is. Take a page from the Red Book. I'm betting this is a rather obscure allusion to Tolkien. We know oh. from Rivendell that Peart is a fan, so I think it's fair to assume that he is familiar with the appendices to Lord of the Rings, in which it is claimed by both The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings were translated from the Red Book, discovered by Tolkien. Hmm. Many readers of Tolkien notice parallels between the events in Middle-earth and political events in the 30s and 40s, including the policy of appeasement 
taken by Britain towards Hitler, Sauron's unchecked rise to power after his defeat by the men and elves mirrors Germany's rise after her defeat in World War I. Wow. Since this song addresses the Cold War, to take a page from the Red Book and keep them in your sights in this context means to remain vigilant and attempt when possible to check the power of the Soviets. Wow. What do you think? I have no idea what to think, but it sounds great. <laughs> nice job, Tommy the Cat. Yeah, Tommy the Cat. I was just going to say that take a page from the Red Book. If it's, if it's the Soviets, then you're just doing what they're doing. Do you know what I mean? Like they, they build up their arsenal, so we build The Soviets are the Reds, so take a page from the Soviets book. Right. Got it. Okay, well, that could, that could be it too. They're building up their stockpiles. We build up our stockpiles. If they're going to you know, watch us with satellites, we watch them with satellites. If they're going to make planes that can't be tracked by radar, we're going to make planes. That, you know what I mean? Like we're just, Whatever they're doing, we're just going to do too. You know, I kind of like that idea better. No offense to Tommy the Cat. Oh, I don't know. I, I always go for the more complex. <laughs> that sounds hideously complex to think of. So I don't know. Let's leave it at that. Interesting though. But then, you know, it says red alert, red alert mm-hmm. again at the end. And then left and rights of passage, black and whites of youth. Who can face the knowledge that the truth is not the truth? Who can? Who can? That to me is propaganda, right? On both sides. Yeah. Left and rights of passage. I'm assuming that means like a, maybe like a passage into like a rite of passage or something like that. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that's what he said. I mean, it's this different spelling of right. You know, he says right, left and right, but it could be the rites of passage. So these things you have to go through when you're younger, because it's the black and whites of youth. Because when you're, again, when you're younger, things are, you know, right or wrong. There's no mm-hmm. grays. And I think when it comes to like the cold war and other types of war, that's the feeling, right? One side's right, one side's wrong. That's it. And who can face the knowledge that the truth is not the truth? Which side can face the knowledge that the other side's right? Or, yeah, who can face the knowledge that neither side is right? The truth is that nobody's right. And who is going to stand up and say that? Who during the cold, who was going to tell, you know, Kennedy during the Bay of Pigs that maybe the Soviets weren't as big a threat as we think they were going to be? True. Well, the next line is abs- obsolete, absolute. To me, obsolete means that this way of thinking is obsolete, but it's also absolute because that's the way everybody thinks. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what about Absalom, Absalom, Jer? Oh boy, Absalom, Absalom is complicated, Steve. Did you look into Absalom? I did. In the October 1991 Rush Backstage Club newsletter, Neil explains the Absalom reference comes from William Faulkner's 1936 book, Absalom, Absalom. That's what I always thought it was, just a reference to that book, a book I've never read. Absalom was the son of King David. He killed his half-brother for raping their half-sister. Then he tried to overthrow David and get the throne. A battle resulted during which his hair was caught in a tree, suspending him above the ground. Against David's wishes, Absalom was killed by King David's mighty men. David grieved for his son by lamenting, Absalom, Absalom, my son. Now, Neil says, After reading the novel, I was curious and looked up the name in the encyclopedia. Then, while writing that song, I had obsolete, absolute in there. And I thought how similar the word shape was to Absalom. Since one of the main themes of the song was compassion, it occurred to me that the biblical story was applicable. David's lament for his son, Would God had I died for thee, seemed to be the ultimate expression of compassion. And that's how it happened. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I, I um, I looked up the story on some religion websites. And it seems like to fit into this song, you know, it seems like Absalom tried to take over the rightful king, mm-hmm. his, his own father, tried to fight his, his own father and lost. And that, you know, it's just a war between two sides, either of which could have won. Just reminds me of the, of the Cold War. Yeah. But, but a fantastic song and also a fantastic video, Jared. This was probably the one Rush video that I think was played more than any other Yeah, on MTV back in the day. Yeah. And the boy in the video is, you know, first playing in his sandbox as the ill wind comes arising at the beginning of the song. 
Yep. And then he gets on a nuclear warhead yes, and rides it around the whole video. Yeah, so that's that's a reference to a, a Stanley Kubrick film called Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. I've never seen it, though, but there is a scene in it where someone is riding a nuclear warhead. And the person who's riding a nuclear warhead, Jer, is Getty's son, Julian, which I did not know. It is? It is. I didn't know that. Yeah. How about that? And the other thing about the video that just jumps out at me is... The parts where the band is playing, yeah, it is so 80s and so dated <laughs> it looking. It's, it's great. The bright blue jacket that Alex is wearing with the skinny tie. And Getty's got that Steinberger bass, which is just an 80s looking bass. Is that the one without the head? The one without the head. And, Al, and Neil's got the electronic drums. It's just 80s to the max. And I love it. 80s to the max. <laughs> That's a very 80, 80s way to say that. <laughs> max headroom, right? Yeah. So anything else on this fantastic song, Distant Early Warning, Jar? Um, I don't know. You want to talk about the, the, the crazy um, instrumental guitar solo part? Sure. It's, it's fantastic. It is. It just, it, it just ratchets up the tension in this. There's a lot of tension in this song, isn't there? Yeah. And I always like this song because being the amateur bass player that I am, I could always play this one. Oh, really? Yeah, I could play this song, yeah, from beginning to end, and I was so thrilled with myself. Nice. But I love the bass line. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's a great song. It really is. Top tier. Yeah. Good job, guys. Yeah, and it's, <laughs> uh, like you said, it's, it's one of the forgotten great Rush songs. Yeah. Just because it Definitely. dropped in the middle of the 80s, and I guess... A lot of the stuff from the early 80s just gets forgotten, not just Rush songs. That's true. We won't forget it, though, Jar. No, we'll never forget. We've got one more song before we wrap up our podcast today. After Image. So, Jared, this is the second time we've talked about After Image. That's true. On episode 21, we did our tribute to Neil Peart, and we, at the end of that episode, we, we played After Image and, and discussed it. But we, can, we yeah. can do it again today. Sure. I've got a quote for you from Neil, which I didn't give you the last time we talked about this. Okay. After Image is based on the idea that when someone goes, there are a number of lives they left their mark upon. The death of Frank Zappa was sad to me, because the world needed people like Frank Zappa. And the same is true of a guy named Bernie, who I met when he was leading bird-watching tours in a national park. He had so much knowledge, but he's not long for this world. And all that knowledge is going to be lost. That's the tragedy. So when some people go, I feel that kind of wrench. That's why I wrote that song. I try to believe, but I can't believe in that kind of stuff. Hmm. I thought I heard a different story about who this was about. I don't think the song was about those people. It was about Robbie Whalen. Oh, okay. Yeah. Who was a tape operator at the studio who was killed in a car accident year prior to this album being released. I think he was just saying people like Frank Zappa and this, this guy, Bernie. Oh, okay. They're the type of people that this song is about, but specifically the song was written for Robbie Whalen. Okay. Yeah. That's what I'd heard. And also, in the 1998 live release, different stages, they use the quote, suddenly you were gone from all the lives you left your mark upon as a dedication to Neil's daughter and wife who died prior to that album being released. Yeah. And of course, when Neil died earlier this year, 
Rush fans gravitated to that same quote. Yeah. Suddenly you were gone from all the lives you left your mark upon. Right. And like Neil said about Frank Zappa, it's sad because the world needs people like Neil Peart. That's true. Yeah. So this song is a fitting epitaph for Neil as well. Yeah, it's true. What I love about this song is that there are very few words in it. Yeah. Did you look at the printout of these lyrics? I did. It's, it's not much. No. It's sort of like, uh, like someone challenged him to write a song in like 50 words or something. Yeah. There's so few words. But, of course, being the economical genius that he can be, there's so much in this song to talk about. Yeah. It's incredible. Just that first line, I mean, that sums, sums it up perfectly. Yeah. Suddenly you were gone from all the lives you left your mark upon. Yeah, and then, and then most of it is you know, recounting all of the things that one would do with a loved one or a friend, right? Mm-hmm. Talked and drank into the misty dawn, ran by the water on the wet summer lawn. Yep. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, after images in this song, right? I hear the voices. I see the footprints. I hear the echoes. These are things that, you know, are left after someone passes through. Mm-hmm. It's really, really a very finely constructed set of lyrics. And the, the one line that really gets me is, I feel the way you would. Yeah, that's, we didn't talk about that the first time. I don't know if we did. I don't think we did, but I feel the way you would is just so packed with meaning, mm-hmm. right? Because everyone understands what that means. Yeah. Right? It gives you the depth of despair and the depth of longing and sadness in like six words. Yeah. I feel the way you would. Whole books. I think I said this um, on another podcast when we were talking to someone, but this is whole books have been written about mourning people. And Neil captures the entire thing in one sentence. Yeah. And Neil suffered so much from this in his life. He lost so many people that were close to him. Right. I mean, if you could think how, if you, if you pass away, you can imagine what your loved ones would feel about you. It's a great way of describing sadness, describing loss and taking it out of yourself. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Putting, putting the feelings onto the other person who has died and saying, I feel as bad as you would feel. It's just, I don't think I've ever heard anybody say something like that before. And in just such a simple way. Yeah. And I, I think about this kind of thing all the time, whether I would rather, you know, like would I rather go first or let's say my wife go first. Hopefully this is years down the road. Right. But I don't want her to go through that pain, you know, because I, I would feel the same way. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Selfishly, I would rather go first because I don't want to go through the pain. Right. But I also don't want her to have to go through it. Right. So it's, it's a conundrum. This is the thing, right? We can't say it, even though, even though we're trying to get the point across, we can't. But Neil got the point across. As soon as that line, everybody knows what that line means. There's no further explanation. There's no adjectives thrown in. There's nothing. It's just this line, I feel the way you would. And you're like, yeah, I, I get that. I understand that. But the last line of the song, this just can't be understood. You understand it, but you also don't understand it. Yep. It's incomprehensible. Yeah. Which, again, is brilliant. It is. It really is. It's, it's one of his best set of lyrics. And, and that, the bar is high. Yeah. <laughs> you know, these, this, song, this song is just amazing. And I may have said this when we talked about this song before, but the emotion that Getty gives this song in the vocals is just fantastic. Yep. And again, the emotion that Alex brings across in the guitar in this song is also fantastic. They bring Neil's words to life in the song, which I I would think is so hard to do. 
but they, they managed to do it. Yeah, they managed to do it every time, but especially with this one. Incredible. And, you know, the, the breakdown, the musical breakdown or whatever, right, when it's just the drums and, and the keyboards, where the, you know, where the solo should be, mm-hmm. where the solo should start, kind of just breathes a little bit, right? And then it kind of kicks in with the solo. It's just a wonderfully constructed song. This song, man, I think when the song's going up there, I know you always say that, you know, your top 10 songs, this song, after listening to it and really thinking about it, this is, this is up there for me. You know why we keep putting off this top 10 list, Jared? Because it's freaking impossible to do. It is impossible. I know. It's going to be impossible to do. It is. This is another one of those songs. I know they played this one live and I never got to see it. No. It would have been fantastic. Yeah. To see them do this song live. Fantastic. But alas, we did not get to see it. No, we didn't. So anything else on After Image, Jer? Bringing down the podcast here yeah, at the end. No, nothing else other than brilliant. It's brilliant. And we've got uh, six more brilliant songs to talk about on Grace Under Pressure on later episodes. So stay tuned for that next week and the following week. You can find us on Twitter at Rush Fancast, Instagram at The Rush Cast. Email Jerry, let him know what you think about Distant Early Warning, After Image, Grace Under Pressure's fantastic album cover, stock tips. Stock tips. <laughs> the Rushcast at gmail.com. The bass intro and outro, as always, done by our good pal Lex. And Jerry, I think I know what your quote's going to be, but go ahead. Do you, Steve? I think I do. All right. The world weighs on my shoulders, but what am I to do? You sometimes drive me crazy, but I worry about you. I worry about you too, Jer. Oh, thanks, Steve. Take it easy. Bye.